I'm Deirdre Boza, and you're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Friday morning. I'm Deirdre Boza with Carl Quintanilla and John Ford. Today, a tale of two types of tech stocks after names like PayPal, Netflix, Facebook plunged, taking tech markets with them. Investors are breathing a sigh of relief this morning as the Nasdaq turns green thanks to some strong results. A key name sending things higher. That would be Amazon popping this morning after reporting Q4 numbers. We will break down the report and where things could go from here next. Don't think we forget about we forgot about Snap either. Shares are surging after the company's first profitable quarter ever. CEO Evan Spiegel joins us alongside Julia Borston later this hour. Carl. We're going to start, though, with big tech getting off the mat. Amazon shares lead a rally after Meta led that sell-off yesterday. Some key drivers, not shipping, but strength in cloud and advertising, along with an almost $12 billion boost from its investment in EV company Rivian. Amazon also raising prices for its prime membership for the first time in years. It's important, though, to pull it back a bit and take a longer-term view. The stock has languished. Uh, today's move takes us back to where we were a few weeks ago or where we were really in July of 2020. That's a theme for Snap and Pinterest as well. Big moves in today's trade. But if you've been in the names for a year, you could easily be down 60 or 70 percent. John, we're keeping an eye on the advertising business and also the acceleration in operating margin at AWS, which I think a lot of the desks this morning thought was the headline. Indeed. And Carl, I got a different perspective on this quarter in the sense that I look at where Amazon was in February 2020 before the pandemic hit. It was uh, at around 2150 ish, and now it, it's it's above 3100. So I mean, has it languished over the past year? Yes, because it ran so much during the pandemic. And I think part of what the results showed is that that run made a lot of sense. Uh, as I said last hour, this was an impressive quarter to me, not necessarily just because of what happened in the quarter, but because Amazon has been able to continue to pursue two hugely important but diametrically opposed strategic goals at the same time. One, uh, on the AWS side, cloud and AI leadership. AWS is the biggest uh, when it comes to that area, when it comes to platforms, and it's enormously profitable. And then on the people side, with logistics and transportation, they've hired hundreds of thousands of people at a time when a lot of businesses have had a hard time hiring a dozen people They've done it at higher wages. They've done it as Omicron has Mm -hmm. taken people out and they've had to pay overtime to cover those shifts. And yet they managed to use the profits from the AWS side, D, to cover for the costs in the people side. That's a strong strategic position for them to be in. The advantage they have over some of their competitors is just that sheer amount of capital that they can put back into the business, which has been their strategy all along. Carl, I know you were talking about it earlier, but that CapEx number, $60 over 2021, is just incredible. And guys, we also talk about the profit engine, right, AWS, but now there's advertising is, what, a $31 billion business over the last year, rivaling the likes of Netflix and YouTube. Uh, So another profit 
profit engine here to continue to do all those things, John, that you laid out and perhaps stay ahead of the competition. Let's get an investor's take on this and the other big tech earnings of the week. Bring in Satori Fund's Dan Niles. Uh, Dan, let's start with what we've seen from the mega cap companies. I know going into this season, you liked Facebook and Google for their valuations. Do you love Facebook now? Well, I, I, if you remember, we tweeted out yesterday that we sold our Facebook in the aftermarket when we saw that comment on competition, because, you know, that just made no sense to us in the sense that TikTok's been around since 2017 in its current form. Um, so, you know, to have them say that when they haven't talked about it for the last several years just didn't make any sense. And to some degree, Facebook was a pandemic beneficiary in that, you know, you didn't have much to do other than stay on social media. So, uh, you know, we violated a rule of ours, which was sort of stay away from things that might have benefited. Facebook, we thought, had some other positives, but clearly that was just outweighed by some of what else was going on. And quite honestly, the reports last night, you know, bring that whole TikTok competition yeah. uh, statement into question because obviously Snap, which is more exposed, had good numbers relative. They beat the revenues, board numbers went up. Mm-hmm. So it clearly wasn't affecting them and Pinterest, obviously not in the same league, but, you know, yeah. obviously their numbers were fine as well. It's laying bare these different business models and the idea of targeting and tracking versus direct advertising. And so on that sense, Dan, uh, I know that you were also bullish on Alphabet, which had a blockbuster quarter. What are you doing with this name? Are you holding on or do you think that it's sort of run up as much as it can? No, we, you know, we bought more uh, uh, Google, you know, the the day Facebook reported uh, while we sold some calls against our Facebook position thinking, you know, the Google with the stock split, you go back and you examine stock splits, the stocks do very, very well between the time they announce and the time they split. They also had a fantastic quarter. They're also reopening play with, you know, hotels, airlines, vacation areas. They're going to start advertising again, and that's 10 to 15 percent of their revenues at Google. So, you know, it's our largest position by far. It's more than twice as big as our next single stock position that we have in the portfolio. And we added more to it yesterday. Um, when Facebook took Google down. So for us, Google is, within tech, the best combination of growth at a reasonable price with a reopening play built mm-hmm. into it. And that's where we'd rather be, you know, while we have a whole bunch of shorts on, because, you know, our still big picture view is S&P down 20% at some point this year. And it's going to be hard for most stocks to get out of that. Um, and so that's kind of the bigger picture within all of this. Right. Dan, I- I've been asking uh, a lot of smart folks like you over the past few weeks about whether the sell-off in certain growth technology is overdone. I mean, it's taken some names back to IPO levels and and, and below that. And uh, if they've got solid technology, if they've got solid growth on the revenue line, if their products are differentiated, even if they're not making a profit at the moment, why aren't they worth investing in? And I guess Bill.com today is an example. After its results, it is up better than 30% at the moment. We've got founder and CEO Renee Lassert who's going to join us later in the hour. But uh, to what extent is, you know, everything that's not making profit is trash, you know, overdone? Well, I mean, you have to step back again from all of this and say, well, where are valuations in general? They're at near record levels. And to put it in perspective, if you take the market cap, the entire stock market, you divide it by GDP, you're sitting at about 1.8 times. 
the uh, 50-year average is 0.8. So within that, I think you have to be selective because you can look at Tesla's quarter, right? Great quarter, great outlook. Stock is still down 15% year to date. Every single one of the FANG Plus stocks is down. You know, five, six of them are down in terms of the FANG Plus names. They're down double digits. So this isn't a question of earnings. It's a question of what are you paying for that? And within that, it's the names that have the worst profit pictures that you know you have the biggest issues in. Now, don't don't get me wrong. We own one or two of those types of names, and we like the bill-paying ones, the or the you know alternative finance names, whatever you want to call it, group. But we have that matched up against a lot of shorts. And for us, the bigger question is: oil's over ninety now. You've never had a res- you've never not had a recession when oil got to a hundred. You've got average hourly earnings of 5.7%. The economy is you know, uh, three quarters based on services. So the inflation picture keeps going up. And you know, I hate to mention the word recession, but when oil's going up this fast, inflation's going up this fast, and the Fed hasn't even started to shrink their balance sheet yet, it's still expanding. They haven't raised rates yet. You, know, you have to think about the broader economy and how it affects all these fast-growing companies. Because you're going to run into other Facebook-type situations, I guarantee you, before this year is done. Hmm. Um, Because an economy affects everything. So you still like cash, is what you're saying? Yeah. I mean, you know, we put out a tweet this morning saying, you know what, our Facebook position, we got out of it at 250, took our beating down 23% in the aftermarket, and put that into cash. And that's where we're going to leave it, because we still believe S&P down 20% you're going to have a tough time finding stocks that offset that. Obviously, if you're comfortable shorting stocks or indexes, that's the better way to hedge your portfolio. Um, But that's kind of how we're still viewing this. And we don't want to forget about that. I do want to get you on uh, on market function, Dan. Uh, Nice piece today uh, quoting um, a Nomura strategist who says that the intraday realized volatility is so substantial that it's creating a dynamic where buy side portfolio managers and traders are constantly blowing through their risk limits. And they're referring specifically to the last couple of days. Uh, is that a, a decent characterization of what's going on? Yeah, I mean, we say this a lot, which is we manage our short book in particular daily. So, you know, we could literally put out a tweet every you know, few hours if we were going through our entire book, because you are moving so fast in not just volatile names, but supposedly value type names. I mean, you can look at the moves and stuff like in the telecom services space. AT&T had its biggest one day drop on earnings in over a decade. Um, and so, you know, whether it's value or high growth names, you've got massive moves happening. And that's causing a lot of problems, especially when you've got names that are not supposed to be volatile acting incredibly volatile. So and you have to remember, most hedge funds, et cetera, they're levered up two to one. So if you've got your shorts going up, your longs going down, you know, you're getting killed and you're putting leverage on top of it. That's a big issue. And I think we you know, you're going to see some funds getting liquidated this year. In my mind, there's no question it's going to happen. Um, because you have that volatility that you're talking about, Carl, right. um, on top of an economy that's slowing down and multiples that are compressing and a Fed that's not your friend. And Dan, not just the leverage on the institution side, but you see a lot of it on the retail side as well. And I wonder if you can put that in perspective for us. Options trading, how is that different or not different from previous drawdowns? Does it make it harder to believe in sort of rallies that we see intradays? 
Yeah, I think Deirdre, that's a great point because if you go back, uh, you know, 2000, you didn't have as much option buying because I think to some degree, unfortunately, you know, we're geared to want the good stuff. So if you go back to the meme stock phenomenon, if you bought GameStop, you did well. If you bought call options, you did phenomenally well. And so people go, oh, this is the way markets work. You have tons of stimulus. You have the Fed cranking their balance sheet, even though inflation is high. And I can manipulate a stock higher based nothing on fundamentals, but based on leveraging it up with options. The problem is options is a zero-sum game. For somebody to win on an option, call option, somebody's losing on the other side of it. And now you're going into a period where I don't think a lot of newer investors know what a sustained drawdown looks like. One month down 34%, which is what you saw during COVID, if you sort of didn't know what to do, you got a lot of it back in like the next 50 days. Um, 2000, and for those that remember, the market was down two and a half years. You had a ton of bear market rallies followed by sell-offs. And if you're putting options on that, you got to get the timing right and the direction. That's a really hard thing to pull off. And that makes your odds of losing money that much more when you're going into this period of time. Dan, always great to get your perspective. Dan Niles. John, we should note, too, that the rally for the Nasdaq, uh, losing a little bit of steam up just one-tenth of a percent right now. Yeah, but not everywhere. Watch the snapback. Snap shares are surging up more than 45% at the moment. And we got an exclusive with CEO Evan Spiegel. Next, Tech Check is just getting started. check on Pinterest, a social media platform beating on the top and bottom lines, but actually reporting a 6% decrease in monthly active users, attributing that loss to the pandemic easing and competition increasing. They're projecting Q1 revenue growth in the high teens year over year. Shares are in the green on those numbers, helping to offset yesterday's losses after Meta's results dragged the stock and the sector down 10%. But again, long term, this is a stock that is down 70% going back to February 2021, Carl. Uh, meantime, D, another social media name on the move is Snap. Uh, shares surging 45% today after its first profitable quarter ever. Our Julia Borston joins us this morning with a very special guest. Hi, Julia. Thanks so much, Carl. I am joined now by Evan Spiegel, CEO of Snap. Thanks for being with us this morning on those better than expected results. Hey, Julia. Happy Friday. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Happy Friday to you as well. I want to start off with the revenue growth, which exceeded expectations. You also guided to better than expected revenue growth in the first quarter. My question is, what has changed since last quarter when you warned that there was going to be a meaningful impact from those Apple operating system changes, limiting your ability to target ads? What's changed in the past quarter? Well, we definitely made some solid progress. Our DR business bounced back faster than uh, we expected. We're still not where we'd like to be, but uh, our advertisers were able to adopt a lot of our first-party tools like advanced conversions and estimated conversions, which they can use in conjunction with Apple's tools and with other third-party tools for conversion lift uh, and media mix modeling. And all of those tools together, I think, now give advertisers a good picture of the results that we're able to drive and they're willing to continue to invest uh, in our products to drive uh, their businesses and, and continue to grow. So we're really excited uh, to see that progress. Not out of the woods yet. We've got more work to do, but uh, certainly a meaningful step forward. 
Yeah, you know, Evan, we're seeing your stock rebound is up about 45% today after dropping so dramatically on Meta's results, which raised broad concerns about the industry. What should investors know about how your business, particularly when it comes to navigating those Apple changes, is different from Meta's? Well, I think just overall, we're much earlier uh, in our monetization journey. So if you look at the average revenue per user that we're generating relative to Facebook or even to a, a Twitter, it's a fraction. So we're much earlier. And of course, we've got this really large and engaged audience that, that's difficult to reach. And and we're making progress over time. But I just don't think we have uh, some of the similar you know, pricing dynamics, for example, that they have. And so we've had a little more flexibility to be able to navigate the changes. We also built our advertising stack from the beginning to be privacy protective. And so this may have been a little bit less of a you know, shocking transition maybe uh, than it was for them. Interesting. Now, you mentioned your user growth. You did grow users faster than expected as well, while we just saw Facebook lose daily active users. What's behind your user growth? I think our products are just really resonating with our community, and we've been able to really diversify our product over the years. So in the beginning, people started using Snapchat to communicate with their close friends and family using our camera, and we built an augmented reality platform on top of that so people can express themselves with all these great lenses, and we built a map so people can see what their friends are up to, excuse me, and see what's happening around the world. Um, And and of course, uh, with Stories and and now with Spotlight, we've got so many different ways to engage with our platform. And and we think that's really helping to drive our growth. Evan, I have to ask about TikTok, though. TikTok was singled out by Mark Zuckerberg as a key uh, part of their competition and one of their main challenges. What kind of impact are you seeing from TikTok? We definitely compete with TikTok when it comes to video entertainment. So in our Stories product and our Spotlight product and Video entertainment in general on mobile is highly competitive, whether it's TikTok or Instagram or Facebook or, or YouTube. Um, but, but TikTok is, a, is a, I think, a unique challenge uh, in that they you know, have a privileged and protected position in the Chinese market that you know, Instagram or Facebook or Google or us aren't, aren't actually allowed to access. So they're able to take that protected position in the market, generate an excess uh, return because they don't have to compete with us uh, over there and then reinvest that, you know, in the United States and, and Europe. So I think that that's what makes them a bit of a, a different and unique competitor. But again, our, our service is really built on this core of communicating with your friends and family, expressing yourself uh, through our camera. And, and our product is quite diversified. So even though we compete with them in some areas, um, I think in these areas like augmented reality, for example, we have a highly differentiated uh, platform, you know, the technology, but also now, you know, the hundreds of thousands of developers and millions of lenses we have on our platform. Hey, Evan, uh, good morning. It's John Ford. Uh, On the call, you said that friends story posting and viewing per daily active user haven't yet returned to pre-pandemic levels. Give us some color, if you can, about how, um, whether it's lockdowns or, uh, you know, vaccination rates have affected engagement usage of the platform and therefore um, your prospects uh, on being able to monetize and entice more users going forward? Yeah. So, you know, if we look at the, you know, year over year numbers in in aggregate, basically what we saw was that, you know, friends story viewing and friend story posting uh, declined and then viewership of premium content, um, you know, and and content in spotlight had increased. And, you know, this is uh, pretty consistent with the overall trend we've seen uh, during the pandemic where, 
you know, people essentially told us, you know, there was this big surge in the beginning where everyone was posting and updating their friends on what they were doing. And then throughout the pandemic and throughout the lockdowns, there were just less interesting things to post. You know, people were stuck at home. And, and as a result, I think stories were less interesting as well. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, how this evolves, uh, you know, hopefully as, as we progress through the pandemic and folks travel more and get out with friends and, and you know, start to have more fun together out in the world. Um, it's definitely something we're keeping a close eye on. Hey, Evan, it's Deirdre. Something else that stuck out to me on the call last night was how you guys are already delivering on augmented reality advertising. You guys said that you're pushing it out. Brands are and companies are. They're delivering and it is delivering a return on investments. Ultimately, though, does that model get disrupted when we get if and when we get a more immersive metaverse that operates through virtual reality? Do you need to work on a VR offering given all the activity in this space or are you already? There's definitely a lot of excitement around virtual reality, but we've been focused on augmented reality, gosh, for, you know, almost 10 years now, mostly because we believe people are going to continue to spend the vast majority of their time with their friends and family in the real world. And they're going to want to augment that with more immersive computing. So, of course, today you can use AR through the smartphone and try on products. I think, you know, one of the things you may be referring to is the amazing adoption by beauty brands in particular who have found out that product trial is way cheaper and they can reach more people uh, using augmented reality. So Ulta Beauty's brought a lot of their catalog into augmented reality. And in a two-week period, you know, they saw, I think, uh, 30 million try-ons of their products and, you know, incremental $6 million in revenue. So AR can drive real business results for brands today. And of course, our community loves it. You know, 200 million people engage with AR on Snapchat every single day. So AR is an incredible opportunity today on the smartphone. And then as we transition to this future uh, with glasses, for example, you'll get a much more immersive field of view. You're able to walk around and use your hands to, to interact uh, with computing. And, and all of that really does change the computing experience. But it's predicated on this idea that AR you know, augments the real world that we all share rather than you know, helping you escape to somewhere else. Some people think, though, that AR and VR are going to complement each other, like the desktop and the laptop, for example. So are you just not working on a VR offering? Do you think that that won't be the case? We're just focused on where we see the biggest opportunity and also uh, where we think we have a unique opportunity to provide our community with a totally uh, you know, a special uh, experience. And that's because we've been focused on the camera from the beginning of our business. Snapchat's always opened into the camera. That's how we were able to develop our AR platform over time. And, you know, now that people come into our camera every single day, and I think some, play with something like six, you know, play with lenses six billion times, times every single day, uh, we've been able to expand that offering, build more sophisticated developer tools. And that's really given us, uh, you know, I think a bit of a, a head start as we move towards this, uh, you know, world of augmented reality. So I, I guess I would just say we're focused on where we think we can win. And we think that's a really big opportunity. But Evan, just to follow up on Deirdre's question, you know, there's this, this question about interoperability in the metaverse um, or metaverses as, as it might be. And, you know, you have Bitmojis. Those are avatars. Do you see the ability to bring those onto other platforms or to have your AR be compatible with VR in some of these metaverses? Absolutely. We, we actually already offer that ability today. People love their Bitmojis and, and really feel uh, like they relate to them. 
I feel like it's a, really an expression of who they are. And so we actually help people bring their Bitmoji to all sorts of different platforms, whether that's our partnership with Samsung, for example, or Google. Uh, people can use their Bitmoji across all sorts of different platforms. Um, and, you know, we also have a, a Unity plugin uh, as well so that developers can bring 3D Bitmojis into their game. So that's definitely been something mm -hmm. um, that's, uh, that's an exciting opportunity for us. Let's talk a little bit more about the financial opportunity in augmented reality. You just laid out how advertisers can use AR to drive engagement. Obviously, that would make them want to buy more ads. But what about your AR tools themselves? You're starting increasingly to bring them off the platform. Some companies like Disney can use them. But is there a way for you to make money on that? That's a great question. So today we're just focused on driving the adoption of augmented reality. And what we noticed as we were talking to different businesses is that they realize that AR is so core to their business that they want to have those tools inside their own applications and on their own websites. And so what we've done is take our AR technology and make that available to our partners to build their own AR experiences. And over time, what we find is that when partners realize how powerful augmented reality is on their own applications, on their own websites, they want to drive increased distribution of those AR experiences through Snapchat, where we have this you know, audience that, you know, 200 million people engaging with augmented reality every single day. So for now, we're just trying to help people adopt the tools, learn how to use them, see the business results for themselves, and then, of course, provide opportunities for them to, you know, get additional reach and, and grow their business even faster by promoting their AR experiences on Snapchat. Uh, interesting. Now, you also have some other features such as the map and spotlight that you haven't really started to make money from yet. What can you tell analysts and, and investors about the, what, what the potential is of these, these potential revenue streams? Yeah, we're very excited about the potential of both spotlight and the map. Um, they're very, very different products. Of course, spotlight lends itself to an advertising format that we help pioneer this vertical video. And, and so I think, you know, through some of our early tests and monetization on Spotlight, we're, you know, prepared to monetize that whenever we're ready. We're, we're focused right now just on that product experience on making sure that we've got a deep base of, of unique content made by all the incredible creators on Snapchat. And then over time, we'll think about monetization. But we feel like the infrastructure is ready uh, to monetize Spotlight, you know, as soon as we feel like the product experience has evolved uh, to the right place. And then on the map, we're continuing to evolve that product overall to make sure that the base map, the map that you see when you open up uh, our map is personalized in a way that really makes it feel unique to you based on what your friends are doing or places that are important to you or, or places your friends really like to go. And, and that personalized base map will lay the groundwork for the way that people engage with different places and discover places on our map. And of course, over time, we'll then evolve that uh, into a business as well, because lots of local businesses are trying to reach new customers. And as people use our map to explore the world around them, that's, uh, that's a perfect place uh, for, for those local businesses to gain a larger audience. Well, we will be watching to see when ads start popping up on those different features. Evan Spiegel, thanks so much for joining us. Your stock up about 47%. Carl, back over to you. All right, Julia, thanks so much. I uh, got some breaking news out of the Washington as the House passes the Competes Act. Elon Moyes got it. Hi, Elon. Well, good morning, Carl. You're right. The House has passed the America Competes Act largely along party lines. The final vote tally was 222 to 210. One Republican voted for it. One Democratic vote, Democrat voted against it. Though several of the main provisions have had bipartisan support in the past. And this is the bill that would provide $52 billion to the semiconductor industry. It also authorizes $45 billion for supply chain shortages 
and it includes a number of measures aimed at taking on China. Now, the Senate passed a version of this bill last summer. It had strong bipartisan support back then. And now GOP senators are calling to quickly set up a conference committee to begin hashing out the differences between the two chambers. And the White House has made getting this to the president's desk a top priority, guys. The business community has been waiting for this for a long time as well. For now, the House passing this bill 222 to 210. Back to you. Elon, thanks. Yeah, a lot of semiconductor CEOs have been on our program uh, waiting for this to happen. Uh, thank you for that. Time now for a news update. Let's get to Rahel Sullivan. Rahel. Hi, John. Good morning. Here's what's happening at this hour. With leisure and hospitality hiring leading the way, U.S. non-farm payrolls increased by 467,000 in January. That was much higher than expected, although the unemployment rate did edge up slightly to 4%. And the economists had more modest forecasts for payrolls due to the Omicron surge. Hiring was also stronger than initially reported for November and December. Upward provisions increased payrolls by a total of 709,000 for the two-month period there. Kohl's, meantime, taking some bitter medicine. Today, the retailer triggered a poison pill shareholders' rights plan. It's designed to prevent a hostile takeover attempt that values the company at around $9 billion. Management, backed by a review conducted by independent financial advisors, says that that undervalues the company in light of its expected future growth. And the Biden administration is looking for middle ground on solar power. It's extending tariffs on imported solar cells and panels for another four years. But it's also raising the quota and will continue to exclude utility-grade panels. You're now up to date. More Tech Check will be right back. Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Deirdre Bosa and John Fort. Markets swinging between gains and losses this morning. The Nasdaq's the best performer of the day. That slew of beaten up software names helping to lead the charge there, like Datadog and Palo Alto. Don't forget the Nasdaq's top gainer, Amazon. Shares shooting higher, up double digits. A big percentage move for a mega cap company. Here to break things down for a senior markets commentator, Mike Santoli, as the week overall, Mike, is still the best so far this year. Yeah, uh, obviously, uh, you know, not up that much point to point, but a lot of swings and uh, a slight tilt to the upside because you did have some relief uh, that uh, carried some of those big cap stocks. I think Amazon's reaction, I think relief is the right one in the short term. People really piled on to the, the possibility for a deeply negative outcome. Solid results. Here's, though, something that somewhat pushes back on the idea of Amazon exceptionalism, at least as the things are developing in the last couple of years. So it's Amazon relative to its two very broad kind of components, the S&P retail sector and, of course, cloud computing, pretty much neck and neck from, uh, from this f- time frame. Over a five-year period, I should say, Amazon's done tremendously better, up almost 300%. But it does show you recently it's more or less been trapped by the stuff that it does. And I would also point out in the fourth quarter, net sales growth at Amazon, 9%. Nominal US, U.S. GDP in that quarter was well above 10 percent. So it just sort of shows you that there's been a little bit of a coming back to the pack because of all the outperformance uh, fundamentally that Amazon had through the pandemic, guys. Uh, Mike, meantime, a lot of discussion about sort of the push and pull on inflationary forces, even though we've gotten some cooler than expected numbers. Uh, you got oil, of course, 93 today. Um, how important is that going to be leading into CPI next week? Yeah, I mean, I I think we're almost setting aside the possibility that the CPI number is going to be the key motivator for the Fed's first move. But in terms of trying to get away from this idea that the Fed is really chasing inflation higher, uh, I think it is very important. Uh, You're seeing market-based 
uh, inflation expectations come in a little bit because people are ramping up their uh, expected number of Fed rate hikes, the idea being the Fed will actually be successful in restraining things longer term. But in the near term, that's the big question. You still have the market pricing in some chance of a half point increase in March. Maybe the CPI number next week informs whether that's correct or not. Mike, what do you make of these huge percentage moves that we're seeing in some pretty significant uh, stocks market-wise, Amazon being just one, Facebook being another, and yet indices overall, uh, particularly the S&P, not moving that much. Are Microsoft and Apple the sort of um, support wall for the house there? Is, are they like the main reason why the, the indices don't reflect these big moves? Are they being counterbalanced by something? What, and what about the concentration that we were talking about uh, you know, months ago and a year ago that was developing uh, in the big tech names in the S&P 500. Is that even more so the case now? Uh, well, it's actually splintering a little bit. I would say, yeah, you're right. Apple, Microsoft have acted, and Alphabet, to a degree, have acted as these kind of load-bearing uh, walls, you would say, for the market. But you see a day like today, and the inflation beneficiary type sectors like banks, like energy, when those are both moving together, sure, it can offset uh, some weakness in other areas of, uh, of tech or somewhere else. Uh, you're actually seeing what we thought of as a unified block of FANG or whatever additional letters you want to add to it. It's really, it's really diverged. So it's dispersion. Uh, the big moves, I think, are all about a very highly stressed uh, correcting tech tape. Uh, and it's easy for a stock to go back to a price. I keep saying that it was at very recently, even if that price is very far away. Once you've covered all that ground, once you've lost $200 billion in market cap in a single company in a single day like Meta did this week, you, you basically have to accept that your holding can move that fast and you're going to get out of the way when it starts to move and vice versa. All right. Fair warning. Mike Santoli, thank you. Yeah. And a sign that high-tech growth names might be regaining some life. Check out Kathy Wood's ARK Innovation ETF. Just inches from snapping a five-week losing streak. While on today's biggest tech movers after the break, don't go away. Miami gets a lot of love for wooing tech companies lately, including investors and founders. But there's another city in the southeast that's a growing hub for big tech companies. Frank Holland is live in Atlanta with that story. Hey, Frank. Hey, good morning to you, John. You know, here in Atlanta, 27 percent of tech workers are black compared to about 8 percent nationally. The city is becoming a growing tech hub uh, compared to even a city like the Bay Area. It has very similar growth. Atlanta's tech workforce is also growing double digits, like I said, like the Bay Area. And the Atlanta area has the top tech degree producing university, Georgia Tech, as well as a number of historically black colleges. Major tech companies, including Apple, Alphabet and Microsoft, have opened offices in Atlanta. Visa is moving its chief diversity officer here to collaborate with startups and find talent. Our constituents at all levels include the black community, and we are not shy about wanting black community in our workforce. Atlanta is also becoming a hub for startups. That includes Calendly, a software scheduling company that's grown to a $3 billion valuation, proving that tech can thrive here in Atlanta. We've definitely seen uh, you know, many more investors uh, come down to Atlanta to source companies. I've just seen a lot of activity uh, with startups here in Atlanta, and it's been really exciting to see that. 
A great pipeline, but brain drain is still an issue. More than 15,000 tech graduates have moved away from the city over the last five years. The city's trying to stop that trend, even subsidizing internships at startups. Carl, back over to you. That's a fascinating uh, look at a, a very important part of the country, economically and politically. Frank, appreciate that very much. That's our Frank Collin. Uh, Bill.com shares surging this morning after some strong results. Don't miss a breakdown of those numbers uh, with the CEO when we come back as the S&P once again back in the green, 4480. for a gut check on a pair of gaming names. That's Activision and Unity. Take a look at Activision first. Shares are flat this morning, slightly up after posting earnings that saw net bookings for Call of Duty fall year over year for both console and PC. Missing street estimates for both revenue and EPS as well. Opposite story, though, for Unity beating on sales and posting shallower losses for the quarter than the street expected. Also reporting $1.1 billion in revenue on the year. Guiding growth between 34 and 36 percent for 2022. Shares are up sharply, nearly 20% on those numbers to start the morning. Don't forget Take-Two also. The company's studio, Rockstar Games, confirming via Twitter that active development is underway for the next iteration of Grand Theft Auto, sending those shares higher this morning by more than 5%. Lots of people talking about that on my Twitter feed. Tech Check is back in just a moment. Don't go away. Shares of Bill.com shooting higher after topping expectations for the latest quarter. This stock has been back and forth quite a bit lately. And joining us now is Bill.com founder and CEO, Renee Lassert. Renee, welcome. So at the moment, the stock is up a little better than 31%, which would be just enough to erase the losses from January. So what a ride. But I want to talk about the quarter and the results, particularly when it comes to a couple of recent acquisitions, Divi and Invoice to Go, we talk about fintech a lot and not enough in the context of small and medium business, which is a huge part of the economy. What's working there, particularly when it comes to cross-selling? That's a great, great question, John. And thanks for having me on the show. You know, a lot of things are working for us. I started the company because I grew up around small businesses, understand the pain points that they have every day. And we built this financial operation platform that really transforms how they do the back office. And so the acquisition of Divi and invoice to go was to continue to extend our platform so it can be the one-stop shop that businesses have. And what we're seeing in this quarter is that businesses want that. We had over 8,100 new customers added to the platform in the quarter. That was on the core bill platform. We had uh, a nearly tripling of revenue, 197% year over year. We had 85% organic growth. And that just points to the fact that businesses want they want this solution that's a one-stop shop. Now, on the question of the cross-selling, we're in the early stages of actually integrating the product. So we've just started the opportunity to sell into our customer base and vice versa into either Invoice to Go or Divi's customer base. We're just at the beginning stages of that. So these results are really driven by the organic growth of both businesses uh, you know, and the combined success that we've had. That is a torrid pace of growth. You're talking about near tripling there. So tell me about the costs <laughs> that come along with that and the decisions you're making about how much to scale up those costs to support further top line growth and and how much of this might just be fast out of the blocks and maybe you don't want to chase uh, that growth momentum as much. 
Yeah, a lot of this is built on, you know, the way I think about the business is we think in terms of years and decades, not months and quarters. And as a result, when you're building platforms over that long period of time, you're investing consistently. Uh, we have $2.8 billion on the balance sheet that we've raised from investors to be able to deploy that capital efficiently with discipline. And that's what we've been doing. These acquisitions were great acquisitions to bring into the fold, to start extending the platform, to you know, be global, even you know, with invoice to goes platform. All these things uh, are going to be something that we continue to invest in. So the success we're seeing, I think, in part is something we businesses that we've learned about businesses that they're resilient. You know, COVID has taught us that SMBs are resilient. They find ways to thrive and to, and to succeed, even in environments that are tough. And one of the ways they do that is they turn to increasing the efficiency of the operations and they come to bill.com with that. That's increasingly what's happening is people are coming to us to help them with their payments, whether they're going or coming. Renee, we've had uh, so much, we've had so many quarters of incredibly strong new business creation in this country. But now we're in this mode where we're talking about return to office. Uh, we're getting people back into the labor force. Uh, do you worry that there's going to be some mean reversion in the population of potential new customers down the road? I think one of the things that we've seen is that people like being hybrid. People like the environment and the opportunity to be able to work from wherever they need to, to be able to have the life that they want. And so I believe that hybrid is going to be a part of something that happens for society as a whole. And that means that you need to be able to have that back office in your back pocket. I've said that before. I'll say it again. It is super important and super valuable for every business to be able to run their business from anywhere. And that's what we do. We give you the financial operations. We automate it. We put it in your back pocket. We give you all the capability to run that business. And so as people come back into the office, they're just going to want that efficiency because they don't know. Are they going to be in the office? office today or they're going to be you know at a client tomorrow they don't know that and that's the opportunity that financial operations has for for the overall economy such an important part of the fintech and smb digital transformation story renee lacert thanks for being with us thank you very much meanwhile peloton down almost 85 percent in a year uh, but more than half of analysts still have it as a buy. Also reports uh, results next week, along with Lyft, Take Two, and more. Do not miss the latest coverage as it happens here on Tech Check, as the Dow has unwound about two-thirds of a 312-session low. SnapShare is up more than 50% right now. Earlier this hour, we spoke with CEO Evan Spiegel about why exactly they had such a strong quarter, given what we saw from Facebook. Have a listen to what he had to say. We're much earlier uh, in our monetization journey. So if you look at the average revenue per user that we're generating relative to Facebook or even to a, a Twitter, it's a fraction. So we're much earlier. And of course, we've got this really large and engaged audience that, that's difficult to reach. And and we're making progress over time. But I just don't think we have uh, some of the similar you know, pricing dynamics, for example, that they have. And so we've had a little more flexibility to be able to navigate the changes. We also built our advertising stack from the beginning to be privacy protective. And so this may have been a little bit less of a you know, shocking transition maybe uh, than it was for them. So more of a privacy-protected ad model. He's essentially talking about direct advertising, Julia, versus the targeting and tracking that Facebook has built its business on has just left him in a much better position. He was pretty humble considering uh, the differences and their history. 
Yeah, and it was also interesting hearing him talk about how they are very much focused on the augmented reality opportunity here and now, you know, using the phone as a way to enhance the real world experience as opposed to focusing on the 10-year opportunity of the metaverse and virtual reality, John? (laughs) I mean, 50% up uh, right around there. Sounds amazing, but we got to keep in mind, that still doesn't erase the January losses for Snap. We were just talking to Renee Lassert at Bill.com about how 30% up for him, Carl, uh, just barely erases January losses. Mm -hmm. Snap is still in the red for the year. So investors, you know, place your bets on what really matters from here fundamentally and how to value these companies. That really is the question. Yeah, I also loved, uh, Julia, his ability to take the idea that some of these names benefited from the pandemic when we were all at home. His point is that some of those snaps weren't very interesting. So we're going to see how these companies try to frame themselves in what we hope is going to be an ongoing reopening. But I think to that point is he talked about all the different tools that Snap has and how Snap's tools are in many ways more diversified than, say, what a Facebook or a Twitter does because they have map. They have all this professional content as well as messaging with your friends, Carl. Yeah. Uh, What a week. And, of course, a lot more headed our way next week, too. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern.